name's Alistair Harkness and I'm joined here today by the co-director of the Centre for Rural Criminology at the University of New England, Dr. Cole Mulrooney. And we're very excited today to have with us as our special guest, uh, Dr. Walter DeCassaretti from the West Virginia University. G'day Walter, how are you going? Good, how are you? Yeah, very well. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on our on our podcast, vodcast series, which is available on YouTube and uh, and Apple and and elsewhere as well. Uh, and we're really excited to uh, have a chat to you to flesh out some of the key things around uh, your research interests. And I'm wondering whether you could just uh, give a little snapshot about some of the some of the research that you're actually working on at the moment. Okay, and, and, and perhaps as well the, the book that uh, that just came out, the Ratwoods book that just came out recently too. Okay, I think I'll start with that, Alistair, because that's a, a, a good segue into what I am doing now. Uh, this book, uh, Woman Abuse in, in Rural Places, uh, I was very interested in trying to synthesize the extant literature on woman abuse in rural places, a literature, an international literature, as I've mentioned many, many times, that the bulk of the uh, research on violence against women in rural and remote places comes out of Australia and the United States. So I was fortunate to have some research in interns uh, to scour the literature, not just the criminological literature, but public health literature, um, ethnic studies literature, other types of literature. And there is a literature, there's a broader literature out there. And so I pulled it all together. So I wanted to you know, give people an international overview, but I also was concerned about broadening the focus to include not just interpersonal violence behind closed doors, but state and corporate violence against rural women. And I was very, heavily influenced by British radical feminist scholar Liz Kelly, who created the continuum of sexual violence back in the late 80s, and it continues to stand the test of time. Uh, it's making a big comeback. And on the continuum, it raised, the behaviors that rural women experience range from you know, sexual harassment, be it face-to-face -face or online, or in the workplace or in public places, all the way to um, corporate and state violence against them. Um, and often this results in, in deaths and, and very, very serious injuries. Consider you know, rural farm workers in the United States. I mean, they endure a considerable amount of, of, of sexual harassment, exposure to poisons. There's no childcare, and so their children are with them in very dangerous working conditions. Um, and um, many of them also leave these dangerous work conditions in rural communities to go back to households that are characterized by intimate violence too. And one of those issues about the rural settings is it's out of sight and out of mind. There's no sort of capable guardianship if, you, if we want to adopt the term from the crime prevention literature. You know, yeah. people, people can be victimized and nobody would know and the offenders can get away with it too. Well, this is it too, Alistair. You know that, especially in the United States, I know Australia has very strict immigration policies, but in the United States, there's, I mean, very, very, oh, I don't know, for lack of better words, rabid anti-immigration. Mm. And so, as you know, there are people that are coming from, you know, Central America and South America 
fleeing totalitarian uh, regimes, seeking you know asylum in the United States, and many of them who happen to squeeze by you know the authorities work in in rural farm communities, and they're too scared even you know to, to report anything anyway because you know the immigration authorities will will you know throw them back to where they came from so that that kind of axe is always hanging over their heads yeah so a rock and a hard place if you like you know what's yeah. the lesser of the yeah. two evils yeah and then also you know when we think about war i mean genocidal rape in sudan and darfur and other places the, these are state and corporate crimes because the military industrial complex profits significantly from war. The other key issue there as well is the different rural peoples as well. So there's the rural peoples in, in country Victoria or West Virginia, and then there's the, uh, the poor buggers in the, uh, in the back box, if you like, of Iraq who uh, suddenly have drones coming over the top of their, their heads. And yeah. it's all of these different compounding pressures and impacts on, on people and, and quite uh, quite a disparity between people in different places around the world and the attention that's given to their issues. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to, to give attention to that. Uh, Victoria Collins has done some great stuff on state crimes against women. I, I talked extensively to her when I was writing this book and her book is outstanding. And, and there is a conspicuous absence of um, research and theoretical work on state crimes against rural women. So you, you really have to scour other literatures like the war literature and other okay. types, which I did. Uh, and then theory, um, but my book is, is filled with theory. Um, my biggest criticism now today, uh, especially of US research on violence against women, it's become very atheoretical. What we're seeing um, and this was published by Sean Gabadon and some of his colleagues in the Journal of Criminal Justice Education, that if you look at the three big American crim journals that everyone seeks to, you know, get published in, Criminology, Justice Quarterly, and Criminology and Public Policy, Gabadon and his colleagues looked at a 10-year period of time, and the bulk of the articles there were secondary analysis of, of National Crime Victimization Survey data and Uniform Crime Reporting data. Yeah. So what happens is these things are called quick and dirty publications. And, you know, I've worked with these data sets, but I mean, what they do is they go backwards. So they, they, they you know, data dredge, if you will, and they mine these data sets. And then, you know, theory is an afterthought. Mm. Whereas, you know, people, my age and I'm, I'm dating myself, but the demands were such that you had to have a rigorous theoretical framework and it had to inform original gathering of data. And an N of 308 was not ridiculed. People didn't say, well, this isn't a representative sample. They were more concerned about whether your dissertation was take, taking us into new avenues yeah. that would lead to further work in the area. But if you look at, I mean, I, as a director of a research center on violence, I subscribe to, to many journals hmm. and I am just, you know, gobsmacked by the atheoretical nature of what I'm reading. So I, you know, my career would not be where it is today. Alistair asked me, you know, how I started. 
my very first journal article was a speculative middle range theory. That was my very first journal article. It was published in the Journal of Family Violence in 1988. It still exists today. And if you examine the table of contents or even just the articles, you won't find any theory. I wouldn't be published today if I wrote that. So fast forward, Alistair said, what am I working on today? Well, in this book, I have a th theory. I'm working on the connection between globalization, boomtown, and violence against women. And what Joe Donemeyer uh, and I are doing, uh, as you know, we were going down two different rivers. This just gives you a sense, I think, of the, the theoretical framework. You could see it, I think, I hope. And um, what we're arguing is that, you see, people like Rick Ruddle and others, good scholars, but much of rural criminology is stuck in this social disorganization quagmire. And as you know, when I was doing the work in rural Ohio and Joe was in Australia, actually in your town of Armadale, working with Elaine Barkley and Pat Jones. And I was discovering that, no, there isn't, you know, social disorganization. There is social organization in the three counties, which were structured very specifically to prevent public crime, but also function to promote violence against women in a very rigid hierarchy. Joe found the dark side, what he calls the dark side of the mine shaft, you know, where, where farmers who were victimized by farm crime didn't want to report this because they couldn't go to the pub. You know, there's more to it than that. I know I'm being very simple, but but he, he and, and can we this, just tap into something you said there, Walter, just for our listeners who aren't overtly familiar. Can you talk about how the rural environment shapes domestic violence or family violence and how that might differ from differ from the urban space? These rural communities, especially in Australia, and in fact, if not in most parts of the world, tend to be very conservative. They vote conservative. Am I wrong? Australia? They're not voting for, you know, progressive you know, socialist parties. Mm. And we also know that in Australia, the further you go into the rural areas, the more violence there is, um, right? Now in the United States, rural communities are dominated by conservatives. And in conservative communities, you find higher rates of adherence to the ideology of familial patriarchy, which refers to male domination and control. Okay, so there's more patriarchy. Patriarchy is a variable. It's not a constant. It's a variable, and it varies across place. Uh, and so, rural places tend to attract or produce more rigid patriarchal men, which in turn explains, in large part, the high rates of uh, or the higher rates of violence against women in rural communities. It's not just the patriarchy, of course, right? It's, it's, but there are micro level determinants too, such as what you would call in Australia, mateship. I call it male peer support, attachments to male peers and the resources they provide that encourage and justify violence against women. So what we're seeing is work is disappearing in rural areas as well. The disappearance of farm, family owned farms, sawmills, all these things. So these are major threats to men's masculinity, uh, 
They often end up hanging out with other unemployed men, lamenting the loss of their masculine status. Their wives or cohabiting partners respond to the unemployment by seeking employment, which is seen as a threat to the breadwinner status of, of many of these rural men. And so they encourage each other to, you know, repair their da damaged masculinity through the use of violence. Now you add to this the conspicuous absence of resources. But even when you look at police, Neil Websdale and even Sarah Went, Neil Websdale in, in, in Appalachian, Kentucky, Sarah Went in Australia, Sky Saunders, her research on, on sexual harassment of, of rural Australian women shows that these abusive men are often friends with law enforcement officials. They're, 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 very, they're often friends. They, they, their children play ball together, uh, they hunt together, and so on. So uh, Websdale calls it the good old boys network. So um, while there is an absence of police, the police that do exist, that do exist there, are at high risk of contributing to it. This is an unsettling truth that people don't like to talk about. And I guess yeah, no, that's uh, really interesting. And to uh, on... you know, geographic... sorry, I'm slow with my internet connection, but we're we're doing some research right now uh, with police in Australia. Uh, we'll keep it that broad. And there is another side to that coin in the sense that the, the the police struggle with that duality of roles of community member, pub goer, you know, soccer participant. Uh, every, someone who knows everyone, but also someone who has to right. lock people up and, and, and see them in the grocery store the next day. And, and so it's interesting you bring that up in the context of, of contribution uh, uh, to these types of cultures and things like that, which I have no doubt of. Uh, but it is interesting talking from this officer perspective of that struggle of maintaining that presence and how they navigate policing so that they can maintain um, um, credibility in that environment and that a certain type of policing could diminish credibility in the long term um, but anyways it just ties into what you're saying in terms of how then that plays yeah. out at a more micro level of of violence against women for instance yeah and then you also have physical um and social isolation there's no public transportation in a rural community a car is not a luxury it's a necessity so there's a number of factors. You have high levels of alcohol consumption, drug consumption here in West Virginia, where the opioid overdose capital of the country, because opioids now are increasingly difficult to come by, people are turning to heroin because it's cheaper. So we rank number two in uh, heroin overdose. Research is coming out of uh, the medical programs here at West Virginia University showing that the women who are um, heavily addicted to opioids and meth have a history of child physical and sexual abuse. And this is a very powerful coping mechanism. So, you know, there, there's, it, but still, you know, in all my years of research, all my years of research I've found, and my colleagues too, and we're a large community, international community, less than 10% of men who physically, sexually, psychologically abuse women suffer from some type of mental illness, less than 10%. And that we have worldwide, one out of every three women will experience some type of physical or sexual violence in their lifetime, tells you 
something very sociological. See, I mean, if you've read C. Wright Mills, the sociological imagination, it speaks for itself. But still, you know, a really strong determinant is this belief that, that men should be in charge and control. And what you're seeing, you know, when your colleagues from around the world are watching what's unfolding in the United States, there's a, a, what Michael Kimmel talks about this breed, new breed of angry white men with a sense of aggrieved entitlement. And they want their dominance and control returned to them. Okay, they, they, they're angry at women, they're angry at minorities, they're angry at immigrants. Um, and it's a very fertile breeding ground for more violence. And we're seeing the rates of, of female murder with COVID going up. And in the United States, the rate of homicide, as noted by the Uniform Crime Reports, has increased 30% since 2000, mm. uh, last year. Now, whether that continues, you know, a good criminologist looks at a 10-year time period, not just one year. So we can't jump to any conclusions. But Sandra Walklate and her colleagues at Monash University are doing some very interesting work on COVID and, and violence against women. And it, can you imagine if you're trapped in a rural environment, you know, with nowhere to go with an abusive man, it makes it even worse. So I think a good step to see some good research is needed to see if COVID has been connected to higher rates of violence against rural women than um, urban and suburban. That's a, that's a project that needs to be undertaken. Yeah, that's, a yeah, that's really interesting. And, uh, getting back to... Sorry, yeah. I keep getting the delay, but I didn't even think of that because there is a lot of research going on on domestic violence and COVID, particularly in Australia. You even see the government actually messaging about this because we've had some of the strictest lockdown rules in the world. And yes. so you are trapped and your access to services have diminished dramatically, um, even in areas where you had uh, classical access to these services. But interesting point to see how this varied also differently across geographical space. And what Joe Donemeyer and I are arguing, you know, if you look at this theoretical model, it starts, you know, with globalization, goes to natural resource extraction, moves to patriarchal social reorganization, and then to woman abuse. What we're arguing is that when these, these, these communities, these rural communities where the mining takes place, they were already conservative. They were already patriarchal. The mining just exacerbated. These communities just didn't change. They didn't become, you know, uh, communities in which violence against women and other harms were new. The, the soil was there. The seeds were there. Okay? It was there. It's just like if you bring guns into Southside Chicago, and God, no, you should see the murder rate there. Yeah, I mean, something else, eh? Oh, it, it, I mean, it's unbelievable. And then you've got police officers who refuse to be vaccinated. They're not showing up to work. I don't know if you see that, saw that. I did, I did just so, see that, yeah. So let's just say- they okay, I read an article saying they're at less, less than 50% uh, police power um, on the weekend um, in a time uh, when this violence is so high. And let's just say, okay, there are no guns for a minute, but you have such- frightening levels of poverty and housing conditions and so on in the south 
And these people can see the north side of Chicago where there's so much power and privilege and affluence and so on. So you just throw guns into the Chicago. By the way, Illinois has very strict gun legislation, I have to add. So does the state of New York, I mean, compared to the rest of the United States, okay? And so what you're doing is you're just adding. It's already there. The anger, the resentment. Yeah, exactly. And uh, go ahead. I was just wondering, um, there are certain gaps and uh, in, in our knowledge and in the, in the scholarship that is generated. And one of the things that struck me from a presentation that you made well, it must be a few months ago to the International Society for Rural Criminology. It was around, and you've mentioned today around, there is that underpinning of, of violence that already exists and permeated, and there are some people who are victimised against. But one of the things that you observed, we don't know a lot about, is those same people, but victimising older people. So the, the notion mm. of elder abuse. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that and how we might well, extend our knowledge and extend that both uh, empirically and theoretically as well? Well, I think with elder abuse, when we think about it, most people think of institutional elder abuse. And we know that these long-term care facilities don't exist in rural areas, at least. And, uh, but we also know there is a literature on elder abuse, not rural elder abuse, but there is a literature on elder abuse. And guess who are the primary perpetrators? Husbands. Yeah, husbands. Mm. Husbands. Really? And, yeah, it's husbands. Oh, not yeah. no, I, I would have thought children. Yeah. Adult yes. children. Yeah. Most people think that. Most people think that. It's, it's actually husbands. And um, so to, I'm convinced now, and you're talking to a person who uses a mixed methods approach, you know, I, I see, I, I repeatedly state this, I see a research method as a tool, like a shovel. You can use a shovel to build a battered woman's shelter or you can use a shovel to help build a prison. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, many people are, are strictly wedded to a particular methodology. I think that's very flawed and narrow-minded. One of the best ways, I think, to get knowledge on some of these hidden crimes one has to do rich ethnography. Uh, one has to go into a community, and this is what we're seeing with, you know, drug research, um, like William Garriott's uh, work on methamphetamine in rural West Virginia, you know, his work on narco-politics and things like that. You have to acquire the trust. You have to live there, and, you know, it'll take time, because you can't go knocking on doors with a you know, uh, uh, survey instrument, you can't phone. Mm. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, I mean, one of the big issues here with the infrastructure, and there's a lot of anger in this country at Senator Joe Manchin, who's our senator from West Virginia, he might as well be a Republican, because he's always, you know, opposing these bills that provide poor people with more support and better infrastructure. What we see serious problems with internet access. I mean, you know, you talk about the problems you're having at home, Kyle. I mean, mm. there are people, you could drive through, you know, rural parts of the United States. I'm sure the same in Australia. There's no access to cell phones. There's no, no access. No. Yeah. And so 
you know, these are some interesting things, but I think snowball sampling, um, you know, uh, these types of things. It's interesting you talk about this because I, I fully agree. I mean, coming from cultural criminology background in my PhD, you know, the, the role of ethnography, I mean, being taught by you, my undergraduate is there. You wouldn't believe, I mean, I've not been through the ethics process elsewhere <clears throat> other than the UK and Australia, but it is next to impossible to do this type of research in Australia. Um, I have a difficulty getting through human research ethics to ask a question about crime on a survey, let alone embed myself in a criminal group. I mean, thinking of uh, Katinka uh, Vondeven's research, my partners there on, on drug trafficking, particularly uh, with uh, steroid uh, users and, and traffickers and producers. I mean, mm -hmm. the she did deep ethnography there in the Netherlands and was able to hang out, uh, go to competitions, talk to these people on the phone, talk to these people in person. And the rich data that came out of that on the actual process of production and trafficking was just, and you could never replicate that here. They just wouldn't have it. And so it's that con that, that, that conflict, I, I guess, is a, for lack of a better word that comes out of that. And I understand why it's there. Don't get me wrong. I, I teach research methods and some of the terrible you know, Tuskegee experiments and these types of things that have come out in the past. Um, but how do you negotiate that in the context of a of a risk averse university, I guess, is a good question as well. What I think needs to be done, and perhaps this could be partially achieved with the assistance of the International Society for the Study of Rural Crime and other organizations, is I think we all have to unite and publicly fight. Uh, because really, these people who are opposed to studying even farm crime are policy ignorant because you need these data to develop effective prevention and control strategies. This is not some type of voyeurism. This is you know, not an attempt to hurt people. I think most of us who do the type of work we do want to see good come out of it. Uh, you know, we want to put it into the public arena and uh, you know, save taxpayers money, save lives, save the medical costs, you know, just to have people living in a decent, healthy environment. So, you know, this IRB, um, this is a problem we're all facing actually. Yeah. Um, and I think it's part of a, a broader assault on the social sciences. I don't think it could be understood in isolation. Mm. It has to be understood in, in a broader context. Yeah, those, those university or higher education metrics get in the way of criminology as public criminology and, yeah. and doing good research to improve lives, transform lives and communities. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing, too. You know, we talk about ethnography. Why do we see such a dearth of it? That's returned to what we were talking about, too. The three paper dissertation <clears throat> as well productivity report someone told me here at my school I was protesting how we judge we do faculty productivity reviews and I said well what about the person who's out in the field doing a four-year ethnography yeah uh, and you know producing data that you can't possibly get otherwise and that's going to you know culminate in, in an interesting book oh no no we don't count that you have to have stuff done every three years so, you know, these metrics are, are very, very destructive, you know, and the neoliberal takeover of universities has an impact on, on how we produce knowledge. Mm. So um, just thinking about that, what, what, are, what are the other gaps? We've canvassed um, 
elder abuse, and there's obviously a lot more uh, more to do in the um, you know the sort of the uh, those economic impacts that are mm. upon people in rural communities. But what are some of the other uh, gaps in the literature? Yeah, can well, we touch on the sibling abuse that, that we talked about yeah. a bit earlier? I'm really interested to explore that. Yeah, that's just fallen completely off the radar, both in the metropolitan and not a non-metropolitan realm. Uh, but it's important in rural, I mean, rural families have more children than urban, especially now. You take what, I'm not going off topic, but I, I want to tell you, this is what is going on now. They're talking about the cliff here. They call it the cliff in, in the United States. Regardless of COVID, regardless of COVID, we are going to see a major drop in enrollment. Major in the next mm -hmm. few years, by 2025, because the millennials are not having children. Why aren't they having children? Have you seen the cost of housing in Toronto these days, which is arguably now the most expensive city in the world? Certainly one of the most expensive. And the housing prices are going up 16% again. Um, so people can't afford places to live. We are also seeing now um, Californians and Oregon and people from Oregon and the state of Washington moving to Tennessee, rural Tennessee, because the cost of housing in those states is so bloody expensive. So the cost of housing in Tennessee, rural Tennessee, is going up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, there are these migratory trends, but rural people tend to have more children, which puts them at higher risk of experiencing sibling violence. And anger and conflict over farm chores and things like this, higher gender hierarchies, age hierarchies, physical size, abilities. These are things that warrant some uh, serious explore, exploration. So um, when we talk about sibling violence, what are we talking about? Because you said it earlier and you hit the nail on the head. It says sometimes it's just all oh, kids will be kids kind of thing. Uh, can you can you talk about that 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 line, I guess, and what it what it looks like a bit more? Well, it it, it involves, it's multidimensional in nature. It can be psychological, it can be physical. Uh, I remember watching my uh, cousin's children fight at her house and one grabbed the other and put her head in the toilet and then tore her underwear off. And mm. it, it can be things like that. It could be now we live in an electrical, uh, electronic era. Yeah, it, the you know even in your own household sending nasty messages or you know um, pictures of you naked in the bathtub and and things like that. So it's 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 far reaching, you know. Uh, and this is why I like this term, the continuum, because I think what we're do doing, and this speaks to Alistair's question as well, we've got to break out of very narrow, limited legal definitions of crime. Now I know there's this whole new area called zemiology, which yeah, I don't harm. know. But that's so old. The Schwinningers were doing this, you know, uh, back in '75. Herman and Julia Schwinninger, uh, the Robert Elias and the politics of victimization. You know, these were all broadening the definition of crime to include unemployment, poverty, homelessness denial of access to social services and all these things. This is nothing new. Mm. But what I find interesting in zemiology is that um, it's calling upon us 
to think of harm in a broader way. And, and uh, that's, uh, I think that's important because also historically, and Al Alistair knows this, you, you know this too, uh, that rural criminologists very much so relied on official statistics. Uh, in the United States, the Uniform Crime Reports. And even when I look, you know, I have some Australian stuff on the limited amount of, um, you know, family violence research in general. And it's all looking at arrests and looking at court statistics or maybe medical. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that most cases never come to the attention of the, of the authorities. The discipline itself of, of criminology, never mind just rural criminology, is in a serious crisis. Mm. Um, serious crisis because of, from my standpoint, the crisis is one of so what knowledge production. I think I've mentioned this to you before in an interview, when I get a copy of criminology or criminology of public policy, justice quarterly, I throw, it in the, throw them in the recycling bin. There's nothing in there whatsoever. There's no, not even a snowflake of brilliance. You know, it's the yeah. same thing. So it's really scary to see a conspicuous absence of, and it, this gets to Alistair's question, because Alistair, you're asking, what do we need? Where do we go? Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel very frustrated, not by your questions, because your questions are extremely important. I feel frustrated by the fact that for reasons that we've talked about, we are handcuffed. Um, and the way the discipline is structured with the support of institutions where we work and government institutions, for example, grants, I can't speak for the Australia Research Council, but I could speak for federal granting agencies here. They've already made up their mind what they want to know. And mm. so the request for proposals, rather than writing a proposal that says, I'm going to explore, you know, possible new directions in, you know, the poisoning of you know, farm livestock, you know, the, the, that doesn't work that way anymore. They already have the topic and you have to bend to it. So the, the onus has, has really um, befallen uh, those of us who want to advance uh, rural criminology and doing th things through the society, through the two different book series, through the Open Access yeah. International Journal of Rural Criminology and saying, oh, well, um, up your bum to all your metrics. We're going to um, we're going to uh, advance these things ourselves with, without you, if not with you. Uh, yeah. And, and we've seen this. We've seen this um, over the last two or three years. This monumental growth in in other people coming along and saying, "Well, I don't mind being on this bandwagon. This is a good thing to yeah. do because we can actually do meaningful, proper research. It's just not supported by institutions necessarily." I think what yeah. Walter talked about is really important in the context of, you know, working with different public organizations um, and it especially impacts upon rural criminology, because, you know, if you want to work with the police or, or, or different government uh, organizations, their priority is often not the rural. That's way down on the list. And so when you're trying to jump through hoops for access, um, you're kind of at the end of the line. And so we've been fortunate to make very specific connections that have allowed us uh, um, the opportunity, but if it weren't for that, you know, this type of research often gets scoffed at. Um, you talked about the urban bias, but there's also, you know, a bias towards looking at 
Um, you know, if you look at farm crime, for instance, there was a bit of a struggle there to try to convince people that it's a problem or that it's a serious problem that we should probably look at, you know, and, and, and you know, the thing that gets brought up is you know, terrorism or something like that. And that's on the kind of priority level. So it's trying to convince these organizations um, that this is an important area to look at, um, let alone, as Walter pointed out, even for the important purpose of theoretical development, which is obviously the least of the worries. Yeah. Um this is it you know and the political arena in which you're working in um i'll probably get you folks in trouble but you know your prime minister morrison is we're not all in down chairs <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing as tenure longer. over here but you know it's interesting the despite all this gloom and doom the rural is moving. Yeah. I do have a, I have another suggestion, though, Alistair. I think this is very important. There is a danger, Alistair and Kyle, there is a danger. There is a slippery slope. And this happened to convict criminology. I think there has to be a movement. I mean, the books are all fine and so on and so forth. But I think we need to get more materials in, in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, recognition and legitimation you know i know we could say to hell with all of you we don't care but i think we're doing a disservice especially to early scholars because you know uh, take at uh some schools that you know of in, in australia and in many schools here they don't recognize book chapters anymore mm. they don't recognize edited books and while that's important, I've edited my fair share. You know, I'm, uh, I, I know how important a good edited book is. Don't get me wrong. Some of the best knowledge is there and excellent resources. But I think we're opening ourselves up to attack. For being you know, too insular. Just, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we have the International Journal of Rural Criminology, but I think it's uh, important to try to tap into some other journals. I mean, in my own case, I'm not bragging, but I've published rural stuff in, in the journal Feminist Criminology and Violence Against Women in other journals. Uh, and I think this is fundamentally important. And this is this can going down just a particular one publication path is is dicey i don't know how you guys yeah. feel no I, I think you 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 hit you you make a very good point that we have to bring it to them as well um it's great that we have all this stuff going on i mean just sitting back sometimes and watching rural criminology grow has been so fascinating uh, but you're right we have to take that that growth and that material and, and bring it to other domains and, and introduce it through other channels Using that same shovel to build different things <laughs> to pick up yeah. on observations. Well, that's one of the purposes of this podcast, not to toot our own horn, but it's also to get it out there, get this information out there in a way that is easily digestible. Walter, the the um, infographic that you sent through, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That the, that type of, of communicative medium is so powerful and so important. And so if we can we can bring it in, in multiple ways. For instance, I didn't know this. I got tagged on Twitter. Um, this podcast got picked up by a review by, I think, a group of, of graduate students on a criminology podcast and was featured in the American Society of Criminology uh, newsletter, uh, along other podcasts. Um, and so it's, it's 
yeah, I see what you mean about bringing rural criminology um, to different different um, different venues and 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 trying to access uh, these areas as well and get the message out uh, that way. Uh, of course, you have to do new research too. You just can't, you know, review literature. But um, there, I think what these roundtables they're going to be good. I think um, they're really fruitful, and issues like this need to be brought up. Um, how do we, for example, IRB, both of you brought this up. How do, what do we do about it? How do we create an environment that, that, uh, in which rural criminologists can go out and collect this new data? Because you need new data and you can't rely on these posts, uh, these, these large scale data sets. Because you take the British Crime Survey or it's now the, the England and Wales Crime Survey or the National, um, Crime Victimization Survey, you're going to get nothing, next to nothing on rural unless you aggregate the years because they're broadband studies, right? They get only a small N, you know, it's just like- Yeah, um, you know, it's the same problem over here. You, you just yeah, can't do it. So like, and then also, I don't know, I'm a great proponent of the local crime survey, which, you know, emerged out of the work of the left realist, John Young and all that because each community has its unique characteristics. And for, I mean, you guys did your farm survey, you did it in your particular area. The next step is to do a farm survey somewhere else. Are there similarities and differences in Australia? Are there unique things or are there, is, is it the same? Yeah. If it's yeah. the same, then create a more federal policy oriented approach. If it's the I like state, that. Uh... I like that idea of that local crime survey. I mean, oh, can you imagine trying to justify that in the context? But I see it for theory building and all these types of things. I, I go back to Joe always likes to bring it up, but that Walka study, you know, this little obscure town in, in rural regional New South Wales, where they looked at fear of crime in this really small community and just the insights that, that it had in the terms of, um, as Joe talks about the role of place in criminological theory was so powerful. Um, and so it goes back to your original point of what we opened up this conversation with Walter about theory building and the central importance there and how mixed methodology, you know, tying into a local crime survey could actually contribute to, to um, you know, the broader goal of, of theory building. Well, of course, because you know what happened back in the late 80s and, and, and early 90s, you know, you had these government officials in England uh, and or in the UK and in the United States claiming that people's fear of crime, particularly women's fear of crime is irrational. Mm -hmm. And what they did was, you know, the rates of, of violence against women in these national surveys were very low. Well, of course they were low because they used legalistic language. And most people who are abused by someone they know don't see it in strict legal terms. Along yeah. come the local surveys and you find out, they ask not only about fear of crime, but the behavioral specific questions about people's victimization. And they discovered that women, when you start asking about violence behind closed doors, their fear is not irrational. Uh, you ask questions like, how fearful are you to be a home alone with your partner? <laughs> you should see, we ask that. You should see what the responses are. And if, wow. if you're scared, you know, if you can't trust your own partner, can you trust mm -hmm. men in public places? Of course not. Yeah. And isn't, yeah. methodolo isn't methodology so important? It reminds me of that famous story from 
the, the um, presidential election from the 1920s when the pollster rang all these people up and said, who are you voting for? It was going to be an overwhelming Republican landslide, but it was only the, the wealthier Republican voters who had actual telephones at the time. So <laughs> yeah. it, all, it all depends on, on what you're asking, who you're asking, and how you're asking it, I guess, doesn't it? Picking up on yeah. some well, real points. This is it. But I think we have to move. I was writing about this and imaginative ways of doing surveys. I think we're going to have to, for those of those who want to um, use surveys, we are going to have to move beyond these big national surveys and secondary data analysis and design surveys that capture the unique characteristics of the communities in which they're conducted. Yeah. yeah um, and being informed by theory, like you spoke about, you know, having the questions informed by theory. Be informed by theory. And also, if you look at crime surveys that came out of the UK, you know who funded them? Local labor councils. So funding, I've also been arguing this, that funding shouldn't necessarily be, you know, uh, just from the ARC, which is highly competitive to begin with and a little incestuous, I would argue. But that's why I think there's alternative funding sources. Um, is there farming associations that would? I mean, yeah, that's what we're doing a lot. A lot of the stuff through the center at the original stages has been commissioned work with interested parties, uh, farming associations, um, private sector, even uh, philanthropic individuals with money that have an interest in in. Uh, rural communities and healthy, safe communities. And yeah, it's it's trying to be a little bit uh, flexible with, with where you're seeking funding, yeah. Yeah, I think that needs to be, that this needs to be the case. Um, and uh, I think also there's uh, related to research, regardless of whether you're talking about methodology, funding, the topics within rural communities, mentoring is extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why, you know, it's unfortunate we won't be at ASC, um, uh, but I am seeing, I'm deeply worried about the type of mentoring that early scholars are getting. Who's teaching them? Mm -hmm. Right? Because especially in the United States, you see what's happening is the education and the mentoring these people get is all about statistical analysis. They don't even know how to construct surveys that well. They know how to run, you know, do data runs with SPSS and Stata, mm. but they don't know, you know, uh, much else. So this has become the dominant theme. And it relies, yeah. On, yeah. it relies on intuition rather than, yeah, that on-the-job proper training that um, a lot of us have had, you know, through that really good, strong colleague who provides that mentoring of, of their own it, Yeah. And it really depends on where you are. Like Walter, you were talking earlier about the atheoretical nature. Uh, when I did my PhD with that doctorate in global and cultural criminology, we were almost required to have a theory chapter. You know, one of my primary uh, initial assessment tasks was the development of my theoretical framework. And I'd be talking to other PhD students at Kent and other supervisors at Kent. And they said, what's a theory chat why are you writing a theory chapter what's it don't you just put that elsewhere and so it was very deeply ingrained and I try to do the same things with my students with my current PhD students in terms of developing that theory chapter I always point them to the the late Roger Matthews um, you know so what criminology so what's your so what you know why are you doing this answer that question um, you know in the, in the in the ways that, that, that Roger outlined in that paper and um, 
yeah, I'm happy you raised that, that importance of theory, but we can see how systemically and also you know, even embedded in the PhD process, it, it, it becomes discouraged. Yes, it becomes discouraged. Uh, when I, you know, I'm sounding like an old man, but we had to have a theory, theory chapter. Had to. Yeah. Uh, and I find that theory is an afterthought, especially in certain countries. I, I'm noticing this, you know, this new cadre of people who lack, you know, kind of the, the criminological imagination. Yeah, um, we've gone a, a full circle in this conversation. I think it's taken us in some really interesting places, uh, starting with violence against women, but actually talking about these wider problems that plag criminological research and especially rural criminological research. I'm wondering if we can end by going back um, to that violence against women issue in rural spaces and really your book. Um, can, you, can you give us kind of what are the key takeaways from that text? Can we conclude on that for people who are interested and might want to read further into the work you do and especially your book on violence against women in rural places? Well, I think, you know, two of the most important elements of this book are theory. There's theories, not only theories of interpersonal violence against women, but theories of state and corporate crimes against rural women. I think th those things are unique, very unique features of this book. Very unique features because I have all the, you know, violence against women in rural communities books that you could possibly have. And that's what sets my book apart from that. The other uh, thing that's interesting is the international focus, trying to you know, go into a much broader international arena than just Australia and the United States. The continuum of rural woman abuse, I think is really important that, that I've developed. And um, the policy section, um, the last chapter, what makes it, I think, very important is that, that it focuses on short-term um, strategies that we can do now that uh, chip away at the broader structural forces that promote violence against women. So, you know, it's always easy for us to say we need to transition. This is a left realist in me. It's always easy to say we need to transition from a capitalist, patriarchal, heteronormative, racist society to one that's, you know, equitable on all levels. But that's not going to happen in the near future, certainly not in the United States and not in Australia. So, you know, what can be done now? And that the last chapter asks that question and offers, I think, some innovative approaches drawing from, you know, organizations like the World Health Organization and the UN, you know, putting this problem of violence against women within the realm of human rights. Mm. which I think is, is very unique, the human rights approach to this, because the abuse of women is a violation of human rights, a widespread problem, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So those are kind of the, these, the things that the big takeaways, I think, that you've asked about that makes it unique. I'll of course, put a link in the description as well uh, of this uh, podcast podcast. So if people want to explore further, they can click on that link, take you through to the publication. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and people can always email me and so on. And uh, as I said, the new Alistair wanted to know what the new stuff is. Well, looking at globalization and natural resource extraction and so on. And 
challenging social disorganization theory. Mm. I think this, this uh, again, there's no such thing as disorganization. There's only organization. Mm. And, uh, I think that's a really interesting point to end on. Um, you should come to this ISSRC panel on boomtowns because it would be really interesting to have this perspective presented there as well uh, in the discussion element, because I think you're right. It's important research, but it may be overlooking these kind of macro structural issues. And that is really interesting uh, what you talked about. Go ahead. But also community history. You see community history, this research on boomtowns is ahistorical, except for the fact that it'll say, okay, this was a town that really had nothing. And now, and now the mining that. company came in. Well, it had something. It has a history. Yeah. It has a right? So yeah. there's this ahistorical nature to this type of work. Yeah. So and yeah. The, prob uh, the problems that were pre present historically become exacerbated in these types of contexts mm -hmm. as you raised in, in the context of violence against women, for instance. Alistair, any any final parting questions or word? No, no, I think uh, I think we've covered a, a nice broad uh, array. Well, thanks very much, uh, uh, Walter. Uh, Walter de Cassaretti from uh, West Virginia University has been our guest today. It's been a fascinating, insightful, eye-opening uh, conversation, which we've explored a number of different uh, themes and issues so thanks again for uh, participating in our podcast uh, it's been terrific thank thanks you very much walter thank you